um, is, is a difficult doctrine to, to lay out carefully. There's really two edges of it. Um, I think most people are familiar with the half version, the once saved, always saved, which as far as it goes is true, but it, it's far better to talk about genuine faith. The Lord will shepherd his sheep so that they will not fall off the cliff. They will persevere. And, and he, the book of Hebrews is very concerned with this thing, this theme. The author of Hebrews repeatedly writes about how he is chagrined and concerned and alarmed that this body who initially bore such good fruit. In chapter 10, he talks about how they uh, rejoiced at the seizure of their property and how they um, ministered to people in prisons. But now, based on their sort of return to the temple system, now based upon some of their wavering on Jesus, he's not so sure. And this is remarkable, okay? And and so the challenge with this understanding is this. On the one hand, the Bible insists that um, people who are professing Christ, walking in the light, ought to have confidence in their salvation, ought to have confidence in their position in Christ. And the other truth is we must persevere to the end. And it seems to us you can say one or the other, but not both. I want to show you in one paragraph of Hebrews, we'll go a little earlier in chapter 3, both. Okay, so we're just going to look at the very first paragraph of chapter 3. Notice the greeting. This is really confident language. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, that's pretty confident language, right? That's, there's not any, maybe some of you are holy brothers, sharers in a heavenly calling. That's true. But now jump down towards the end of the paragraph. Verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's just been comparing Christ and Moses. And we, and notice the writer of Scripture includes himself in this conditional clause. We are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So a, a man under the inspiration of the Spirit writing Scripture can say, I am part of Christ's house and part of his church if I... Yeah, I'm just making the plural first-person pronoun singular. If I hold fast to the end. And he can say that to the same group of people he just said, holy brothers, partakers of heavenly calling. So I, I, I therefore deduce we ought to be able to say both. Hold, we ought to be able to greet each other. Kathy, holy sister, partaker of a heavenly calling, and you are a Christian if you make it firmly to the end. That's the challenge. Is we, want, we think we can only say one or the other. And I just, again and again, we'll look at some more, see the, the scriptures laying both of those things out. Um, so look at the passage I read earlier, 12 through 14 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers. And there's this language of, of calling them believers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And then the remedy of this, um, this drifting is exhortation. This is one of the reasons why we gather together corporately on Sunday mornings is so we can exhort one another day after day. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now here's where verb tenses and grammar matters. Verse 14. For we have come. Now have comes past tense, right? Okay, we have, something in the past happened. We, in the past, sometime in the past, came to Christ. And that's true if, for we have come to Christ, if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And that's where grammar is critical, because he doesn't say you become a Christian if you make it to the end. You, you did become, in the past, a Christian if you make it firm to the end. 
And I read to you what First John says, which is the... There's my notes. Hold on. Ah. First John 2 answers your question about those who don't persevere to the end. First John 2 says this. Um, 2.19. Go, go over with me to First John. Let's see it for yourself. First um, John 2.19. What are we to make of those? We all know people who profess to be Christians for a while and then have fallen away and abandoned their confession and abandoned gathering together. The only New Testament instruction I know concerning them is right here. Um, 1 John 2, um, and uh, it's 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Why? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they were not of us. Now, the difficulty for us is we don't know whether someone's leaving is a temporary lapsing and like Peter, they're going to get up and come back or whether someone's departure is the beginning of the end, right? I mean, so we, we aren't in the place of God. We don't make those judgments, but that's generally what happens. And so we pray for people who've fallen away. We pray for people who've, who've abandoned the faith and we pray to them right up to the end. And sometimes they can come back around. John Piper had a son who went astray for years, Barnabas Piper, and now is, is walking faithfully. But others, um, like Charles Templeton, who is a uh, contemporary of Billy Graham's. In fact, they used to tour together speaking at those revival meetings. Templeton went um, apostatized from the faith, became a sportscaster up in Canada, and to his dying day was an atheist. And yet... People thought he was a more powerful preacher of the gospel than Billy Graham in his day. So we don't know. So we pray and we ask God to intercede. But that's at least a framework to interpret what's going on. I mean, which is why I more and more view and think of how God wants me to treat people, not that I know sovereignly. So like, hey, you profess the name of Christ and you, you, you give evidence that you're trying to follow after him. Welcome, sister. I'm not worried about And if at a certain point somebody stops professing Christ or stops walking after him, I mean, that's ultimately church discipline is us saying, we're not sure you know the Lord. Now, even then, Second Thessalonians tells us not to admonish him as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. Even then, First Corinthians 5 says we're doing it so that their soul may be saved in the day of Christ. So even under church discipline, we're not saying you're not a Christian. We're saying <laughs> we have no confidence that you know the Lord. And we're hopeful that this extreme... I would say mercy snaps you to your senses. But if you continue in unbelief, yeah, you're, you're going to perish. Um, so that's, that's, did you have more you wanted to ask? So that's just me answering First Corinthians, I mean, first, not first, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Um, yeah, so I think that, so we can have the confidence that he will help us persevere to the end. Yes. Yeah, the conf this is where the sovereignty of God comes in, and this is why historically, this is why historic no, this is why historically, um, in the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, per eternal security is the Calvinist point, not the Arminian point. Most people I know who don't like Calvinism still like that last point. Um, I mean, a lot of one pointers, and and whichever name you call, but there's a reason why. If you see ultimately human salvation being ultimately and finally determined by human will, 
then so is your perseverance ultimately and finally conditioned upon your will. And if you change your will and at some point decide you want to go worship Baal, you're going to hell, right? Only in the, so the consistency of the Calvinistic viewpoint is God gifts faith, and therefore God can say, where I gift faith, I gift a faith that will not perish. I gift, he who began a good work will complete it, which is how we escape the notion of work salvation when these types of conditions are put on. God says, where I grant, where I gift true faith, I will not let it die. And Jesus prays for Peter, and Peter is restored, right? The shepherd goes after the sheep. He leaves the 99, and he gets the, the sheep. And so that's ultimately my confidence and my perseverance to the end is not, I'm going to do it, but the shepherd's going to come and whack me if I start wandering off the path too far and he's going to bring me back. He's done it before. That's my confidence is in him, not me. But he must do that. If, if as much as I believe and am convinced I'm a Christian, if I'm able, if the Lord allows me to leave my wife and leave this confession, go become a Mormon and you know, marry seven women, and I just live out my days there and die, I should expect to go to hell. I just don't believe the shepherd will let me do that. But if I'm able to do that, I've just given, I think, irrefutable evidence that I'm not his sheep. Um, so my trust is he won't let that happen. He will hold me fast. That's that. Yes, Harold. Since, since the microphone's so close here. Oh, well, there you um, go, yeah. Um, just a... Uh, just a thought on that. Some of you may have heard this story before, but this is a this is a hymn story. But there's a lady back in the 1800s riding in a stagecoach, stagecoach across from a couple other people, and she began to sing "Come Thou Fount," and uh, we we sing it, and we sing part of it uh, hooked onto another song. We sing uh, "Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It." There was a man sitting across from her who obviously had way too much to drink, and and he finally said to her, "Ma'am." Quit singing that song. And she said to him, why? Don't, don't, you, don't you like that? And don't you like that hymn? And he said, ma'am, I wrote that hymn. And uh, it was Robert Robinson, whose name you'll see in the hymn book. And I think the story goes on. No one seems to know the details for sure that he turned his life around and ended up on, the, on the, his life on the right track. Uh, but... But there's an example. Right. Who knows? Maybe that woman singing to him on the stagecoach got his attention. I don't know. But uh, yeah. Um, but quite a story. No, if, if my salvation depended on me, I'd be damned. If my faithfulness ultimately depended on me, I'd be lost. So, but there is. Go, go to um, go to Philippians two. It's not entirely passive. So we talk of justification, right, Um, where God declares, based on faith and faith alone, God declares us innocent and in Christ and and righteous. That is God acting alone. I do nothing in justification except provide the sin that made it necessary, right? I, I, I am inactive in justification, right? By faith initiates it. God responds to my faith, but the actual act, God declare me righteous, I'm passive entirely, correct? Our sanctification, our, con- our growing conformity to the image of Christ is not the case. We are not passive. We act, but we act in concert with God and his sovereignty. So this is like if when we, that really um, complicated message I gave back in the spring on 
election predestination, last spring, election predestination, we talked about the sovereignty of God, and yet humans are responsible, that sort of that dual working together. This is one of those texts, Philippians 2, positively, where we see both, and, and again, this is the type of biblical framework I think you need to adopt if you're going to make sense of these things. If you, if you think it's either me, either I do it or God does it, you're going you're to be banging your head against the wall. When you read passages like um, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work, Greek verb, energo, we get energy from that. It's active. I need to work. You need to work. There's work we need to do that the Apostle Paul is saying, guys, get to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's one, one piece of it. Why? For it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his pleasure. Well, which one is it, Paul? If God's at work, I can just let go and let God. I can just kick back and, you know, no, I need to get to work because God's at work. I don't understand how that works. I'm just saying I think biblically again and again and again, that's the picture we see. So Jesus can warn us. One of the ways God causes us to not ultimately perish, one of the ways God keeps us on the path is precisely through those warnings that say, hey, persevere to the end. That's one of the means God uses to create perseverance within us is encouragements, warnings, and commands to do that. Does that that make any sense? So so we, we want to think, well, is it me doing it or is it God doing it? Yes. Work out your salvation fear and trembling because God's at work within you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So that's, that's I think this type of thing only makes sense in that type of framework, and uh, so, which is, again, how it ties back to a Calvinistic approach that sees the sovereignty of God not excluding human responsibility and human choice and volition. So, okay. That's a lot of stuff to take in. Questions? Donna in the back. This is heavy stuff. I get it. So let's, let's chat. Luke 12, 10, I think. Let's see. Okay. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I don't quite understand that. You and most of the church, yes. Okay. <laughs> that, that is admittedly one of the most hotly debated, and um, there's all sorts of viewpoints. I'll tell you what I believe, what I taught when I was in Luke. Um, I mean, I've, I've literally known somebody who, I mean, a man I respected, who believed literally it was you cursing the Holy Spirit. Like, I curse or, you know, make up your profanity. And I, don't, I don't think that's it. Um, Jesus uses the reference to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in a number of passages in the Gospels. I think it becomes clear, and I'm not going to make the entire case for it, and I'll just tell you what I think, and you can go back to the podcast and listen to it. But I believe it's a willful, um, a willful rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus uses it, it's when people have attributed his miracles to the working of the devil. And what Jesus says is, you know perfectly well, it's not the devil. Satan can't be divided against Satan. You know perfectly well. And yet, when you know perfectly well, and yet you still choose to reject that, that you've crossed a line too far you're not coming back from. Um, so I, I, would, I would argue the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a persistent, willful rejection of truth 
by the Holy Spirit um, to the testimony of who Christ is. And so the Holy Spirit shows you truth, and eventually you say, I don't want it, I don't want it. Heck, Satan's doing it, whatever. Okay, you're done. You're, you're not coming back from that. Um, what I always say to people who are worried if they've committed the Holy Spirit, I mean, take someone like me. I was taught truth at a very young age. I can't remember. I can't get behind the knowledge of the gospel. I, I, I can't remember learning it. I went, my mom won the tug of war with my dad. I went to a, uh, a very um, sound Christian elementary school. And um, I trampled all of that truth for, you know, through the mid to late 90s, you know. Um, you know. We know God does not reject a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Um, and so the few times I've talked to people who've worried, have I in my rebellion, have I in my um, sin resisted, trampled, opposed the truth for so long that I'm committed to the if you're able to get yourself to a place of contrition, if you're able to get yourself to a place of repentance, you're fine. If you have committed, the, if you have committed that sin, you won't be able to. You'll be unable to repent. You'll be unable to, to be, get in that position of contrition. You'll be like Esau, who found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. So rather than chasing your tail, learning, have I committed it, get on your knees, humble yourself before God. If you're able to do that, you're fine. You're good. You have not done that. Um, I guess what's confusing is um, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, what's the difference between blasphemy to the Holy Spirit and blasphemy to Jesus or blasphemy to God the Father? Well, primarily I think what Jesus is saying, and there is even some validity Jesus does miracles because Jesus doesn't expect and demand people simply take his word for who he is. So, so Jesus in John 5 can say, if I testify concerning myself, my testimony is not valid. Because according to Deuteronomy 19, there needs to be two or three witnesses. So if Jesus just says, hey, guess what? I'm God. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. It would be legitimate for people to say, that's not good enough. We need, we need verification. And so Jesus does the miracles he does, and he cites them in John 5. The works that I've, my Father has given me to do, they testify concerning me. And John the Baptist, a man that you recognize as a prophet, he testified concerning me. And first John points out that at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father verbally testified concerning him. So now we have the three or four witnesses we need. Jesus doesn't say, take my word for it. Okay, But the Holy Spirit, if you go to John 15... He does not testify about himself. So there's a sense in which you could be honestly confused about who Jesus is. And you may attribute terrible things to Jesus in your ignorance. You could ignorantly blaspheme Jesus. You can't do that with the Holy Spirit. Because he doesn't testify concerning himself. So in John 16, yeah, 16, um, verse 8 when he comes, this is the, the Holy Spirit, um, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the rule of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, 
and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said to you that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus and to God's truth. And when the Holy Spirit testifies, he convinces, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit, in an inscrutable way, it's not, he doesn't show up and give a presentation. When the Holy Spirit testifies, you know it's true. When the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, you know it's sin, right? And so that testimony, you cannot be ignorant of. So to reject that testimony and blaspheme that testimony must be done with a high hand. It must be done willfully. And that, Jesus says, is a line too far. You might ignorantly ascribe things to Jesus, But if the Holy Spirit has testified to you and to your heart as to the truthfulness of Jesus, of the wrongness of sin, and yet you reject that, you're done. Does that that make sense? That's the difference. You cannot misunderstand the Holy Spirit's testimony. You can reject it. Does that that make sense? And so when you do that, you're, you're done. Anybody else want to jump in? I know this is heavy. We go from we go from perseverance to the unforgivable. So this is this is yeah, yeah. Okay. Who else wants to jump in? I Alex. Have a couple of things on persecution. If we're done with yes. So it seems like like talking about your points on universal persecution. Would you say that we're getting to a point in America where? you can tell the validity and genuineness of a church on whether or not they will be persecuted? Like, I don't think we're there now, but does it look like we'll get there? Oh, yeah, well, certainly the way we respond to it, right? I mean, we're getting to a point now, especially with, like, the LGBTQ hashtag. I don't know the right... Sorry, I'm not trying to be... I'm Sorry, I don't want to be serious. Um, we're getting to the point with those issues, the gay marriage issue, um, and the exclusivity of Christ, that if the culture actually understands what we believe, they will despise us, accuse us of hate crimes, and in some states, arrest us for, if we were to say what we think out loud. Um, and that's really shouldn't surprise us. It, it's not, I'm not saying it's a good development. I'm not saying, yay. I'm just saying, like, we, we've had it easy for a while. And, and thank the Lord for that. That's nice reprieve. But that's more the norm. If your neighbors knew what you believed, they'd hate you, most likely. And it seems like, on the flip side, the churches that are, like, t- trending with the culture, like, right. they keep rejecting these yeah. fundamental truths. It's yeah. like... They're making it more and more apparent that yes. they fall into the yeah. earlier boat of... And you've got to keep Peter in mind. I mean, I think some people, the first taste of persecution, they sort of... It's ultimately their final trajectory. What's their, it's sort of like, you know, Regis on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, final answer. You know. And so Peter denies is a coward. And I'm glad that's there, because it doesn't mean you can never fail. It just means you need to get up and, you know, and, and repent and, and persevere. Um, so, yeah, where, where the churches are capitulating and where they are turning over and letting go of the biblical inerrancy, letting go of those things, yeah, they um, are showing, they're proving that they're, those people leading those bodies, if that's their final answer, 
They're not Christians. Not because of that issue, but because they're unwilling to suffer for the sake of Christ. So like, if I say this, I'm going to suffer. Well, then I won't say this. Final answer? You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing, too, talking about, you know, we have had it easy. Um, we've watched a movie a couple times, The Insanity of God, uh, mm-hmm. with Nip, Nick Ripkin. Yeah. And he tells a story about... Um, well, so he goes around, he interviews all these different Christians in persecuted areas, high persecution, yeah. and he's hearing all these crazy stories about what's happening, and he's like, hey, why haven't you guys been, like, writing about this or getting the word out? And the guy said, okay, so let me, let me ask you, do you wake up in the morning, say to your boys, hey, come look, boys, the sun's coming up in the east? And he's like, no. That, that would be crazy. He's like, why? Well, the sun always comes up in the east. And they said, well, that's how it is for us. Like, that's just the normal. Like, they're, they're going through it, their parents went through it, and their grandparents went through it, and that's just the norm. Somewhat like what you were saying earlier today, like, not being persecuted has been the norm. Like, we haven't been, our parents haven't been, their parents haven't been, so... That's, yeah, that's in many parts. Yeah, I encourage you, go to Voice of the Martyrs because we are not aware of the suffering in the church, but it's going on out there. It absolutely is going on out there. And for many, many Christians today, that's the norm. Um, And, you know, to whom much is given, much will be required. Absolutely. Oop, Jamie Cook. So, um... For, for us comfortable Americans, um, where's the fine line between standing, proclaiming Christ, and just showing our cards? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So like with peers, with people we work with, our employees, yeah. you know, where relationally, relationally where, right. where does this go? Well, I think that's where we need wisdom. Um, so Jesus tells us to be as shrewd as vipers and as harmless as doves, right? Um, we have to season our words with salt so that we know how to answer everyone. I, I don't know if there's a clear, here's four principles. Uh, but I'll say this, like I certainly, like we as a church are doing things to try to protect ourselves legally from liability issues. I mean, we don't expect it to last long, but you know, if it, if it gets us through another round or two, good. You know, um, not in any way that we think compromises our testimony what we believe, but, you know, we, 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 we're hopefully savvy enough to at least bring in our most obvious open weak spots. So, and, and I think that that's, that's, Paul appeals to Caesar, right? I mean, Paul will play the system to, to, to his advantage. Yet we want to be careful. And one of the things I'm really thankful about, like, the leaders of this church is we've said this, I've heard them say it multiple times, look, if we lose our tax exempt status, so be it. Like, we're not going to voluntarily do that. Like, we're not going to put up a flag like, hey, guess what? <laughs> you know, here's, in case you didn't, in case you weren't clear on it, here's what we believe, you know. Um, so I, there takes some wisdom there. But, but it's, it's difficult because you, you need wisdom. There, there isn't like a here's your, your road answer. You want to go more with that? Or? I, oh, you're done? Okay. No, it's, it's, no, it's difficult. It's difficult. It, it, there isn't a pat answer, right? Um, what, I think the really simple thing is this. You and I need to be ready 
in the right time to speak the words of life. And in the right time, that might mean you get fired. In the right time, that might mean persecution. You know, I mean, it's, I think, the challenge for people teaching in the public school system. Like, what do you do? I mean, I remember when Serene was teaching, and we try to, look, they're not hiring you to evangelize. They're hiring you to teach English. So teach English as best as you can to the glory of God. But look, if some kid comes up and asks you, what's, how can I be, like, you tell them the truth, and you get fired, you get fired. Like, if somebody comes up and says, what must I do to be saved? You don't say, talk to me after, the, after I get off work. You know, um, at least that was the decision we made, right? Um, but yet, it, it would have been, I think, wrong for Serena to subvert what they're paying her to do. They're not paying her to evangelize. They're paying her to train them in English and other stuff and, and not do that, right? So again, it takes wisdom and it takes alertness so that you're neither copping out nor intentionally picking a fight. I mean, people can hate you not for the sake of Christ. Westboro Baptist is legitimately hated, not for the sake of Christ, but for some of these issues and wingnut things they get into. So that's the other challenge. It can be easy. Well, of course, they don't like me. No, it's just you're a jerk, you know. Um, And so we got to be careful for that as well. It's a whole balance act. It's, It's tough. It's really tough. Yes, Deb. Microphone. Hold on, Deb. Microphone. So is this one of the basic areas that we were talking about this morning when Jesus says, don't try and plan in advance, just be ready. And I'll give you the words that you're supposed to say at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What's really fascinating, if you read any church history, our men's group went through a... If you want to try to read a little church history, the best thing I'm aware of that's bigger than a, you know, a coffee table book, but smaller than an eight-volume set, is Usto Gonzalez's The Story of Christianity. It's a two-volume set, and uh, if, it's, it's readable. You, you could make a point of, in a year, trying to read it. You, just, you can read 15 pages a week or something and just work your way through it. And our men's group did. One of the things that was remarkable in it, they also have it on Audible, if you do Audible. It's fascinating stuff. But the early church was convinced, because of promises like these, that um, that martyrdom, and remember the word martyr just means witness. Witness, but frequently to be a witness meant to die, because if you were going to witness and not back down, they'd usually put you to death, um, was like the highest calling. In fact, the origin, the origin of um, the whole Catholic deal with saints and stuff actually makes sense. If for, they'd celebrate those who were faithful unto death. They'd f- celebrate those who were martyrs, who were witnesses. And then at the year anniversary of their witness, they'd go and celebrate communion where they died, where they were killed. That, that sounds like a good enough tradition to me. Over time, it gets associated that if you have some relic or some peace from them, there's an extra blessing. But the original of these, from remembering the saints was, hey, it's been a year since Bob was faithful unto death. Let's go, let's go celebrate the Lord's table. Let's do it. Why don't we do it where they killed Bob? In memory of Bob. That's cool. That's how that started. And so they actually were people putting themselves forward, volunteering. This gets to your question. And they believed, the early church believed, that if you presumptuously tried to get martyred, that Christ would not stand with you. And so there's actually, you know, no, you can read through it. They, they fully believe it. So on the one hand, the highest calling, the greatest honor God could bestow upon his children would be martyrdom. And yet, you don't dare take that upon yourself. 
because they understood that unless God gave the grace, you weren't going to stand, you weren't going to be faithful, you weren't going to make it. So people would literally jump forward, I'm a Christian too, you know, and by and large, those guys would recant. That, that was there. It was just really interesting to read. A very, like you were saying, where's Alex? There's Alex. A very different paradigm. Of course, that's the case. Persecution's the case. And there are actually people hoping to, to be martyred, hoping that God might give them that blessing. I mean, that, read, even, read even Paul or the book of Acts. When they beat Peter and John, they rejoiced. I mean, Jesus says things like, when people persecute, rejoice in that day. And we're like, yeah, right. That's exactly what Peter and John did when they released them after flogging them. They rejoiced for being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Like, these guys didn't take that as hyperbolic. Biblically, though, and on the other side, you don't see a lot of examples of people just saying, hey, I'm a witness, kill me. Like, you see people like, Oh, hey, they're starting a riot. Let's go to the next town. Like, let's get out of that. Oh, no, and <laughs> Paul, sense. no, and this gets back to even, again, your question about shrewdness. Paul was lowered. There's times where Paul was lowered by a basket out a window, and there were times where Paul didn't go anywhere. You know, and again, it gets back to, um, I think, much more complicated issues when to avoid persecution and when, look, if we leave, People are going to conclude that the Christians were, were cowards, and we didn't, you know. And, uh, like, when everything after 9-11 went down in Israel, a, a ton, I'm not saying they shouldn't have, but a ton of the missionaries and Christian pastors, they fled. And a friend of mine's dad didn't, and his whole mentality was like, look, you know, we've we got to show them that what we believe is bigger and stronger than persecution. Um, and I'm not saying everyone shouldn't. We, Paul doesn't always lean into persecution. He flees it at times. Um, and other times, he absolutely leans into it. I mean, when he appeals to Caesar, we're told flat out by Felix, he would have been released if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. It seems like, though there comes a time, like, in your life, like, the people that you rub shoulders with every single day for multiple years, if they don't know anything about what you believe at the end of years and years, it's like, okay, maybe we would have opportunities to be more bold. I know I was talking to one of my coworkers who I worked with every day for months and months and months, and we are talking about denominations and stuff, and he knew I was E-free, but that was about it. And he's like, yeah, I really like that, that idea because, you know, evangelizing and trying to convince people, I just don't like that. It's like, you think that evangelical free means free from evangelism. <laughs> And that was just a slap in the face to me because yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> no, that's that's true. I mean, because no, wisdom and alertness is difficult. Rules is easier. So, on the one hand, you can just say there's no responsibility. On the other hand, um, I've, I've talked to people who they're almost guilted into evangelism. If you're not evangelizing, you're you need to repent. You need to get out there tomorrow and the next day and. Keep your eyes open for opportunity. We, we're told by Paul, pray that we might live peaceful and quiet lives working with our hands. Even though we know trouble is coming. Hey, if we can live peaceably, let's do that. You know? um, and so the real challenge is praying, Lord, I want, to see, I want to be ready to speak the words of life. 
I want to be eager to do that. I'm looking for opportunities that I don't want to miss them. Lord, show me when I need to open my mouth and speak. If you walk around like that, you're going to know when you need to talk. Um, and anything else is either negligence or presumption. I mean, if you're just constantly, you know, just, okay, it's been 30 minutes, my alarm went off, time to, you know. Like, no, look, look for those opportunities. Recognize, I mean, God's not going to mock you. Like, Lord, I want to obey you. I want to be faithful. I'm willing to suffer. I mean, even the Apostle Paul prays for boldness. As bold as he is, he, it comes from God. But if you're looking for those opportunities, you're going to find them. I doubt you're going to live next to someone or work next to someone for 10 years and never find that opportunity. If, 10, if five, 10 years go by and you've never had an opportunity to share your faith, it's probably due to negligence, not a lack of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I've, like, constantly, like, my prayer is to, for that eagerness because right. I think a lot of times, like, my mindset is, okay, I want to go to work, I want to, you know, do my own thing and then go home. And it's like, I want an eagerness to share truth with my coworkers. So. And I, I think that's probably, if this is something you struggle with or I struggle with, that's the place to, uh, to pray. What's interesting is we're always praying for people's salvation. I'm not aware of much New Testament backing of that. Not saying that's wrong. The emphasis in the New Testament is pray that the Lord of the harvest would provide workers for the harvest. The prayer is for Paul that he would have courage now as always to open his mouth boldly and proclaim. We are always praying for the salvation. Nothing wrong with that. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't pray for the salvation of people. It's far more consistent with the biblical pattern to pray for the people sharing the truth. So you want to pray for Aunt Sarah to get saved. I just encourage you, pray that and pray, God, I pray that you'd raise up some believers around her and speak the words of life to her, that you give them courage and boldness. That's what we see Paul praying a lot more frequently for. And again, just saying that's the pattern is prayer for the person speaking. Um, not that there's anything wrong in praying for the people who hear. Um, yes. Crystal. For what you just said, can we read a couple of passages yes. that help us clarify? Let's go to John 4. And then we'll go to Galatians 6. And then we will probably be out of time. So in John 4, Jesus' disciples go to get some food. And Jesus, in the meantime, brings the, widow, the woman by the well to faith. And when they come back, they're a little confused. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her jar, water jar, and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And what he's, I think, saying is, you guys didn't see in this woman at the well an opportunity for evangelism. If you'll open your eyes, there are ripe fields ready for harvest all around you. 
Um, Lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For there the saying holds true, one sows and the other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came, um, where does Jesus say pray to the Lord of the harvest? Come on, I thought that was there. No? Luke 10. Good man. Thank you. Okay. Luke 10. I, th- I could have. I'm really surprised that it wasn't there. Luke 10. Can you narrow it down any more than that, Mitchell? If you're going to give us the chapter, can't you at least give us the verse? Verse 2. Okay. Um, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs. So there's the the command. Not that there's anything wrong in praying that people in Galatia and Bithynia would come to faith, but the, the Lord's instruction is pray for witnesses. It, it also tends to shift the responsibility back to us. It's, Lord, somehow, not through me, somehow, um, could you save Aunt Sally? Lord, could you, could you give somebody the opportunity and the wisdom and the courage to speak the truth to Aunt Sally? Well, that might then all of a sudden involve me, right? Yeah. So Galatians 6, and we'll call it a morning. And I get encouraged by this because you read, you read Paul's opening um, thesis in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. I thought, no, it's Ephesians. Wow, I'm all over the place. Ephesians, sorry, 6, not Galatians 6. So the next book over, Ephesians 6. And... Uh, Here's the armor of God passage, right? Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplications to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. Pray that I might boldly open my mouth. Please, Paul says that I might proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I don't want to be, I mean, that Paul wants prayer, which means this isn't something that Paul just is always natural and easy. You know, sometimes you meet people that never embarrass, they don't care, like, wow, that's just the way. No, Paul is saying, please pray for me too, that I would have boldness to speak as I ought to speak. It makes you feel a little better. The apostle Paul needed prayer for that. Um, so it's not just pray that the gospel will go out. 
And what's amazing is at the end of Philippians, go to the end of Philippians, where Paul's in jail. Very last, second to last verse of Philippians. <laughs> and again, we see God's purposes even in, I mean, you think about it, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, who wants to get to Spain, and he spends years in a Roman prison, benched. And in that context, others are preaching the gospel just to make him feel bad and look bad, he says in chapter 1. And yet, look what God accomplishes through that. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, verse 21 in chapter 4. The brothers who are with me greet you, all who greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How do you think the gospel got into Caesar's household? Because Paul appealed to Caesar and was in jail in Rome. That's how. <laughs> Paul just drops that little bomb at the end. There are Christians in Caesar's household. The gospel has infiltrated Caesar's home because Paul was faithful and arrested and shipped off to Rome. I mean, he went on a missions trip. He didn't have to do any fundraising. They, they, they provided the transportation. They got him there. <laughs> and on that note, we'll call it a day. Thank you.